I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guest today is Chris Sepner from the Edgar Allan Poe Museum. He's an internationally acclaimed fine artist whose paintings have entered numerous public collections, including the Virginia Historical Society and the University of Maryland. He's written several books and chapters on topics including literature, visual art, and history. In addition to contributing articles to Biography.com, Resources for American Literary Studies, Crime Writers Chronicle, and the Edgar Allan Poe Review. He has curated critically acclaimed exhibits for museums and galleries across the country with his Library of Virginia exhibition, Poe, Man, Myth, or Monster. He's always in search of innovative ways to bring Poe to new audiences and regularly speaks about a variety of unusual, obscure, and macabre subjects to groups of all ages around the country and as far away as Japan. His most recent book, The Poe Shrine, Building the World's Finest Edgar Allan Poe Collection, tells the strange but true stories behind the Poe Museum's artifacts. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. From Chapart Books, 2019. For more, please visit our publisher's website, trapart.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash V-A-N-E-S-S-A two three C-A-R-L. Your support is greatly appreciated. For more information, you can also visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net, or the podcast main website, renderingunconscious.org. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. The Shining starts with a quote from Edward Allan Poe. So this morning when I had my Swedish lesson and I opened the book, I was like, what are we going to read? And it was this quote from The Mask of the Red Death. Um, And I was like, oh, how perfect, because I'm talking to you today. And so then, of course, I ended up spending the rest of my morning reading Poe because, yeah, I just had to. So it was been a nice day, nice synchronous day already. So you're in the Poe frame of mind already. Exactly. And I guess you're in the Poe frame of mind every day. Yeah. How did you end up being the director of the museum? I'm just the curator. I started here about 20 years ago. Wow. There's a model of 1840s Richmond that showed what the city looked like when Poe lived here and marked out all of his houses. It had been damaged in a fire. 
and they needed somebody who had an art background who could conserve it. And I spent about six months cleaning, conserving, repairing the model. Oh, wow. And then I just stuck around. That's great. Did you have an interest in Poe beforehand? Oh, yeah. Just, I'd been reading Poe since I was a little kid. It's probably about fifth grade. And our librarian introduced the class to his comedies. Oh, wow. So Never Bet the Devil Your Head and Hop Frog. So I got to start with the sort of the lighter aspect of Poe, even though they're comedies, they're still pretty gruesome, but that's, that's where I started. So then when I read later stories like The Cask of Amontillado, I was primed to see the humorous side of Poe and the sort of dark humor, like when the victim, Fortunato, is going down to the wine cellars and he's coughing and, and Montresor, who's you know, about to kill him, says, oh, you cannot go down there. You'll be missed. You've got a cough. Your health is precious. And Fortunato says, oh, tis nothing. I shall not die of a cough. And Montresor says, you're very right. You will not <laughs> die of a cough. And you start to pick up on these little things in Poe's stories if you look for them. But yeah, got an interest early on in some of Poe's stories, and they just sort of stuck with me over time. They really do. That's what I was explaining to my Swedish tutor, who actually was not familiar with Poe. Uh, so then I had to kind of be like, well, you have to read Poe now. And uh, yeah, I was saying he really, like, he's so haunting and his stories really just stick with you. Like, I remember also in elementary school, like the librarian, when we went to library and they would read us stories, I remember her reading a couple of them and like, they just stick with you. They're, they're just amazing that way. Yeah, that's uh, sort of incorporated Poe into my art a while back. This was a long time ago. I was trying to figure out how to make good art. Like if you're gonna make art, if you're gonna spend your time doing it, it should be good art rather than bad art. And worst of all, you don't wanna be mediocre. And I thought, well, what was great art? How did I know when I'd seen great art? And then I thought, the telltale heart. Because you know, after all these years, that story had stuck with me. It was vivid in my mind. And you could see its influence everywhere. Even on The Simpsons, there was a telltale heart episode and I tried to figure out, well, what was so iconic? What really stands out about that story? And I thought it was that scene where the old man is alone in bed at night, pitch black, the shutters are all closed for fear of robbers, the murderer is outside the room, and as he's thinking about what he's about to do, he almost chuckles to himself, the old man startles up in bed and and for a whole hour, he can't lie back down. He's, he's terrified. He knows that somebody's out there. The story goes that, although he can neither see nor, nor hear me within the room, he could sense death's long shadows stalking him from across the room. And I like that idea of just a scene taking place entirely in darkness. There's no visual there. It's just all about anticipation. And Poe does that again in The Raven. There's a good passage where he thinks he hears a knocking at the door. So the narrator opens the door, darkness there and nothing more. Deep into that darkness, peering along, I stood there wondering, fearing, doubting, dreaming dreams no mortal ever dared to dream before. 
So he's just looking into pitch blackness, but he's dreaming these dreams no more ever dared to dream before. But just your imagination's running wild. And I thought, well, how do I paint that? So I did a whole series of paintings. It was all about that moment of anticipation of what's outside the room, what's, what's lurking there. How does that affect the atmosphere in the space you are, knowing there's something outside? Dreyer, who's a filmmaker, he did Vampire, and he was asked, well, what are you trying to go for with this film? And he said, well, imagine you're sitting in a perfectly normal room, and then someone tells you there's a corpse right outside the door. How does that change the way the room feels? So I wanted to sort of make those kinds of paintings about not just the appearance of things, but how they affect you, the atmosphere in the room and everything. So I did a whole series of that. And in a sense, I'm still trying to figure that out with my paintings today. But I do like that moment of anticipation. Because it's better than anything you can depict. I can paint some, some huge catastrophic event, but that's not going to compare to what you can imagine. It's just on the other side of that door. So I started painting doors, half-open doors, staircases, because whenever you see a staircase, you imagine there's something at the top of the stairs or something underneath the stairs. Every staircase is a passage to somewhere else. So I did a whole series of those and windows. It's all about what's not seen, what's just outside of our vision. Yeah, that's really brilliant because I think you're absolutely right. And getting people like getting their imagination going, getting them hooked in, that's that's better than anything, I think. Yeah, I did interested early on in the surrealist and their ideas of how can you tap into the unconscious? How can you reach that? You know, that maybe there's a, another reality, surreality that's just beyond our reach and if we can figure out how to get in touch with it, maybe we can change the world. And one of the surrealist publications was Surrealism at the Service of Revolution. So they have an idea that it was going to change the world. I think in some ways, the world's got a little bit more surreal. But yeah, I think so. I think then there was like a societal pushback where we've gotten like, we got really repressed for a period. I think we go through these like kind of bursts of creativity culturally and then we like try to put everything back in <laughs> and then it bursts out again, you know? Yeah, in the United States after this, you had a period where there was a revival and sort of regionalism and Grant Wood and something that's a little bit more conservative. So that's a little bit too far out there. I think a lot of the surrealists, these are people who were veterans of the First World War who'd lived to see what a traumatic experience this was, how to just change the world. And then on top of that, you've got the Spanish flu pandemic and the Dadaist really got going right about World War One. And you, you know all this stuff, but they were more anti-art. You know, what does art even mean anymore? Is it just nonsense? Is it worthless? What does this painting on the wall still mean? But they were more about tearing things down and and the surrealists looked like they were more interested in trying to forge new bridges to this other reality that hopefully they could bring over, cross over into this world. 
Yeah, that's a great way to put it. I used to do this event every year at this museum in New York um, called the Dreamover, where people would actually sleep in the museum and then talk a kind of about what their experiences were, were. Like they would get, the curators would pick a certain piece of art based on like a, a series of questions they would ask the guests. And so they would kind of curate each work of art and who would sleep there. And um, people afterwards, me and my psychologist friends would talk to them about like what their experience was and what the dream was like. And I remember talking about like how uh, it's great to want to get your kind of day-to-day -day reality and your dream life a little bit more in line. And immediately someone was like, well, I don't want to change my dream life. I like it the way it is. I don't want to like lock it down into these kinds of ideas of systems. And, and I'm like, oh, no, no, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that we want to get like waking reality a little bit more surreal, not the other way around. <laughs> yeah, I think Breton also thought that we were really getting more in touch with our true selves that had sort of been taught out of us. And I think Breton and also Poe mentioned this in Eureka, but when we're young, when we're children, you know, we have full access to our imagination. We believe in our dreams and that's taught out of us. And gradually they just become more and more normal and boring. And, and Breton wanted to tap into what are we missing? What did we lose out on when we got educated and just sort of assimilated into the way we're supposed to behave? Yeah, I think we end up losing out on a lot. Yeah, you, in Poe's last book, Eureka, he writes a whole passage about how when we were children, we believe in the reality of our dreams and in future lives. And so Poe is really thinking, how can we get back in touch with that? That's the vital substance of what makes us who we are. And Breton and thinking the manifesto surrealism was also right about how we get back in touch with that. Yeah, exactly. So Getting my, back in with touch my, with ourselves. Yeah. So with my art, I, I try to open up passages just to let people imagine, to give them something. I think the person who commissioned Arnold Buckland's painting, it's, the Isle of the Dead, she just, her commission, she just said, I want a picture to dream by. So that'd be great if we had artwork we could dream by that's kind of like in that museum where you can just go there and dream by the art, but almost the art could be a waking dream or it could help us tap into ourselves a little bit. And one of the greatest things is when you see people who really can just stand in front of a painting and say, that really, it really affected me somehow. And they remember it years later, they might not be art historians. They might not who know who the artist was, but they say, there's something about that painting that really stuck with me. Maybe it's the smile on the face of that figure in the background, but it just becomes part of their imagination. And it's when I was little, I came from a small town. There wasn't a lot of art, no galleries, no museums. So the few paintings I saw really became embedded in my imagination. Like there was a small probably eight by 10 print of the Laughing Cavalier by Franz Hals. And it lived on top of a bookcase. I don't think my father liked it. So it was never on display. So maybe every few months I could ask for permission. I could look at the Laughing Cavalier. 
and I was intrigued just by the expression, that little smirk on his face. So here I am, five, six years old. Whenever I posed for school pictures, I tried to imitate the laughing cavalier. I tried to become the laughing cavalier. Of course, nobody else knew who that was. And I'm not sure I knew who that was either, but I thought, man, that's a cool expression. So I was sort of becoming one with the art. And the other artist I saw was an elderly woman who lived across the woods from me. And when she, whenever I visited her house, she had a big painting, I think it was the Irish coast during a nighttime storm. And the rocks along the coast being pummeled with the waves look like dog's heads. And that's what most intrigued me about the painting was the dog's heads in the painting. And then back home, we had a velvet painting of roses, painted pink roses on black velvet. And the roses look like dog's heads to me. So then I would see a freshly pruned bush and the, the branches look like dog's heads. So I started seeing these dog heads. So art sort of became part of my life. And I think a lot of people have that experience when they see Psycho. And that's another thing I was trying to do out of my art. I thought, well, what is great art? It's something that really becomes part of your life. But imagine all the people who saw this old black and white movie from 1960 and were afraid to take a shower afterwards. How can this little movie that lives inside your television screen make you afraid to take a shower? I thought, well, oh, that's really powerful that art can do that. Art can really permeate your life. And for me, another example was Van Gogh's wheat fields. Whenever I would go past a wheat field, I think, oh, that's, that's one of Vincent's wheat fields right there. And somehow, you know, you can see a wheat field a thousand times and you're saying, oh, that's just a wheat field. But his wheat fields, the experience of seeing them made wheat fields, the cypress trees seem poetic, profound. Suddenly a tree that's just been standing there for decades is somehow magical and profound. And how can we use art to make life more magical, more poetic? like you're living in a poem. That's beautiful. I guess it's difficult to understand what I mean by making life more like a poem. When I, I saw an Andrew Wyeth show at the Brandywine River Museum, I thought the thing about his works was even though he's depicting ordinary everyday people, they weren't ordinary. They were very magical and special an old barn, an old house took on a new life and thought, man, that's poetry. That's the same thing, I think, Rene Magritte. Yeah, what interesting about his works was he almost looked at them scientifically. He thought, well, I'm conducting experiments. He said, I'm not a painter like those you know, other painters. You wouldn't mistake him for somebody like Picasso, who is about the formal elements. He says, I'm about trying to find the links and what fills in one with the other. And once again, he brought up Edgar Allan Poe because in Eureka and in one of Poe's essays, Poe talks about how the perfect plot, you can't tell what causes one another effect. What's the cause and what's the effect? Everything fits together. 
and Magritte explained it that you know he saw a bird cage and imagined an egg was inside, and that led him to make one of his famous paintings. And what causes the other? How can two objects become united? What is the answer of one object to the other? Like say rain, the answer to rain is an umbrella. Or in his case, Magritte did a painting of a grand piano with a diamond ring around it. And these objects somehow answer each other. And are there objects out there that are the answer to other objects? So I'm interested in those kind of problems sometimes too. Sometimes when I do paintings that have a lot of different imagery, I'm really trying to find out, well, what answers this one? And as you really look through it after the fact, then you look back and say, oh yeah, now it sort of makes sense. Maybe there was a common theme to all that. So do you feel like you paint in a really kind of unconscious way where you just choose things that seem at random and trying to figure out why later? Sort of a hybrid way because I start out oftentimes doing sketches after sketches, trying to get the composition just right, trying to figure out what I'm doing. And then when I actually get past the sketching phase and get to the painting, then I think, well, what needs to be here? How about a tobacco? echo hornworm or how about a lily right there so they start to grow I like the idea of how they just grow but I guess as long as that strong composition is underneath it it still can make it an interesting painting so I want to have a composition that isn't necessarily hierarchical if you think of the Renaissance particularly Raphael you'll see a lot of pyramidal compositions and you know that the top of the pyramid, that's the most important thing. And you'll usually have, he did a lot of scenes of Mary and the baby Jesus and everything's in this perfect pyramidal composition right in the center of the painting. But I try to make sure there's nothing in the center. I want the whole thing all the way around to have objects and elements of interest because why bother to paint the whole thing if they're just gonna look in the middle? I want them to explore it. I like the idea of it being kind of a little game for them to look all around the piece. How did you start painting yourself? I was just always there. Wherever I go, there I am. And I'm my most available model. So I just, I usually paint people I know. Sometimes I'll paint from old photos of people from the Victorian era, but oftentimes it's just maybe five or six people that I know really well over the years have said, hey, I should be in one of your paintings or, hey, I've got a good idea for a painting and we collaborate like that. But often nowadays, it's just me and the cats. So the cats will pop up here and there. And do you and still live in the same area you cats. grew up? What was that? Do you still live in the same area where you grew up? No, I moved out of there. So now I'm in Richmond, Virginia. So actually I live outside of Richmond, Virginia in the Chesterfield County. So I'm sort of more in a wooded area and then I come into the city to work. It's really not that far from the city. So you can go a mile outside the city and you're in the middle of nowhere. It's nice. So there's frogs chirping in the trees all night and cicadas in the evening. and. As you take a walk, you'll see rabbits hopping across the trail. So it's a good place to really 
relax after traffic and noise. You can just get out there to nature a little bit. But I don't paint a lot of landscapes. No. <laughs> yeah. When did you start painting? I don't remember really not making art of some kind or another. Just when I was very little, just to keep me occupied, I'd be given a pencil and scrap paper. And if I was bored, I'd just make drawings. Or if I had to go to church, just start sketching. Or in school, if I finished up my test, I'd flip it over and start drawing on the back. And then the teacher would want the test afterwards. And I wouldn't give it to them because I had such a good drawing on the back. I thought I'd lose my drawing if I gave them the test. So maybe that got me a little bit of trouble, but I just was always sketching things, always imagining different worlds. So I think a lot of kids start out like that, just drawing or doodling, and they're they're taught out of it because it's it's not a useful skill. It's it's not really important, but it's really it's really sort of helped me out through life. I think because. You have access to your imagination. You can just keep imagining. And if you are constantly imagining and constantly seeing not just what is, but what could be, you're never bored. Exactly. It's such a distinctly human element. And I think it's so important for us to be able to kind of imagine our lives in a different way, imagine our world in a different way or a new way, or just, you know, just to keep creating things. And really, imagination does change the world. And the people who started NASA, they said that when they were little, they used to read Jules Verne. So they're growing up reading from the Earth to the Moon. And then when they grew up, they made it a reality. Mm -hmm. So what can we imagine now that eventually becomes a reality? It's a very good point. From just, I just wrote a book on psychoanalysis and art. And when I was researching these different artists, I found so many people uh, reference Poe or, or were influenced by Poe, the symbolist and the surrealist, like you said. I mean, he was, everyone loved him. <laughs> oh, yeah. He had a little bit of something to offer for just about everybody. Mallarmé liked this idea that he's very regimented in the way he constructed his poems. And I think Mallarmé especially liked things like The Raven, where he says that Poe says that he constructed it mathematically, and he wrote a whole essay called The Philosophy of Composition, explaining how he constructed it for a unified, singular effect. And you, when you read the poem, it's all about effects. We go through this half the poem without even seeing The Raven. It's all about anticipation and expectation. What's outside that door? What's outside the window? And then there's passage, that silken, sad, and certain rustling. So just the rustling, the sound of the curtains. It's silken, so you have a feeling of how that sounds. You get the feeling of it. Sad, It's then it's got an emotion to it, uncertain. So all this just in the sound of the curtains. And who often uses colors and sounds and taste and smells and that's nothing Baudelaire liked about him is that there's correspondence there's synesthesia that here we have a sound that's associated with the color 
And the Raven, Poe does a lot of that. He's, well, I'm going with the feeling of melancholy and what colors evoke the feeling of melancholy? What sounds evoke that feeling? And it's part of what Poe did so well is he's trying to find new ways to express things. And sometimes, I think another thing the symbolists like about him was that they're not just a one-on-one -on -one symbology, that there's not just this represents that, they're proliferating symbols. And sometimes, even today, the critics don't exactly know what Poe was talking about, even in something simple as to Helen. Helen, thy beauty is to me like those Nicene barks of yore, which gently over the perfume see the weary wayward wanderer bore to his own native shore. So who's this Helen? There's different theories about who Helen is, what these Nicene barks of yore are. And Poe doesn't tell you. He leaves it open for interpretation. Where's this perfumed sea that the ship is riding across? And then the end of the poem, we get all the way from the Helen symbology into Psyche, standing statue-like in her window niche. And Poe mixes all these symbols together in sort of new, uncertain ways. And then he also finds different ways to represent passage of time, for instance. I think in Ululum, Poe talks about the hours almost decaying as night wears on, and that's something that Breton mentioned was one of his favorite verses, just the night, the hours were decaying, the night was decaying. So it gives you a sense of the passage of time, but also the effect of decay that we're all gradually getting closer to death. So Poe is able to come up with multiple ways to address some simple, seemingly simple metaphor. And then other authors just were really inspired by his science fiction. Jules Verne called Poe the leader of the cult of the bazaar. And Sir Arthur Conan Doyle said there really wasn't much original to do after Poe. He'd invented the detective story. He'd come the basic plots, the stock characters, You've got the red herring, you've got the falsely accused, you've got the detective and his sidekick. So he'd come up with new ideas. He was always about inventing something new. And he's also about the unreliability of the narrator. And that's something that's interesting to a lot of people is that you really can't trust a lot of Poe's narrators. You don't exactly know what they're seeing. And sometimes you figure out before they do what it is they're seeing. Like in his tale, The System of Dr. Tar and Professor Feather. Have you read that one? Yeah, but not in a long time. Yeah. There's a young psychologist who's going to a new mental hospital in the woods because he's heard that they've invented a new technique, The System of Dr. Tar and Professor Feather. He gets there and nobody will tell him what this system is, but he sits down at dinner with the doctors and I think one of them thinks they're a teapot and other thinks they're a ball of cheese and we as the readers know oh these are actually the inmates they've taken over the asylum and tarred and feathered the doctors but the narrator still doesn't understand that yet and I guess the most famous example of course is the telltale heart where the narrator assures you that he's not mad you still think me mad, you'll think so no longer. You see the wise precautions I took for concealment of the body. 
and he goes into this description about how he killed somebody because he didn't like the way their eye looked because it was evil and made his blood run cold. But he assures you multiple times, I'm perfectly sane. Madmen know nothing. So that's another thing a, a lot of authors have responded to about Poe's works, but visual artists in particular. If you look at all the way back in about 1846, Dante Gable Rossetti did some sketches for Poe's poems. This is Rossetti when he's still a student. They haven't really started the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood yet, but he's already interested. What's Poe doing? Wow. How can I use that? And then Rossetti wrote a response to the raven. He said, if the raven is told by a narrator here on earth, I'm going to write the Blessed Damozel that's told by Lenore up in heaven, looking down back from a narrator from the raven. And this became a, a poem. It became multiple paintings. But then, of course, you mentioned earlier, the French symbolists just loved Poe. They love some of the characters he's creating and some of these situations. They particularly responded to the fall of the House of Usher. And I don't know if that's the most popular one now, but that's another one where he writes about the House of Usher is not just the building, it's the family that lives there. The house itself is sentient. He's talking about the, the bricks and the walls, the paintings inside, the books being read. And then we start to, to realize we're sort of hearing stories within stories that there's a passage towards the end where the narrator's reading a poem, but as he's reading it, you say, oh, I hear the dragon being slain and you, he hears a scream. Then he hears the shield falling off the walls and he actually hears the clanking of metal. Then he hears the crashing of wood, all things are in the poem, all of a sudden are happening in real life around him. Of course, that's another bait and switch. We don't realize that he doesn't know what's really happening is that Madeline Usher has just broken out of the tomb. We hear her scream, not the dragon. We hear her coming and breaking the timbers of the door. We hear her coming for us. So the symbolists really respond to that. They also like the idea of this, this Roderick Usher character. He's the sort of the, the father of Desatens from Against Nature, this J.K. Hoisman's novel that was really influential to the symbolists and the decadents. They like this idea of this guy who just lives with his art and literature locked up away from the world. So Against Nature is a whole novel that's about a guy who's decided that life in the 1880s, Paris is too vulgar, and I'm just going to live locked up without disturbance from the outside world, just with my art, my literature, and my memories. And the symbolists just love this novel. It's considered the first great symbolist novel. But that's completely a world away from some of the other artists. So I guess what I'm in a roundabout way of saying is that different, completely different kinds of artists from Salvador Dali and, and Lautremont all the way to somebody like Rene Magritte or Edward Manet are all influenced by Poe in different ways because he gave you enough that you can tap into different elements. 
Yeah, exactly. And I recently went to um, Oslo. Well, like in the before times, like a year ago, I went to Oslo and the Edward Munch Museum there. They had an exhibition of Munch and Gauguin. And uh, they had both done uh, portraits of Mallarmé. And uh, one of the portraits had a, a raven on his shoulder because he had um, translated the, the raven. And, uh, and yeah, and it was amazing to see that all of them also uh, had been influenced by Poe. And I didn't even know that uh, Monk and Gauguin had anything to do with one another. And the exhibition wasn't about how they knew each other or anything, but they were working kind of in the same period and worked in a lot of similar ways because people didn't realize how, how much that uh, Gauguin had done woodcuts and engravings, and so did Monk. Yeah, I think Gauguin did a lithograph of a descent into the maelstrom, but also one of his Tahitian pictures. If you look closely, I think it's at the Courtauld Institute. There's one of the Tahitian women reclining on a bed with the window, and I think in the top left corner, and a raven sitting on the windowsill, and the word nevermore written in English there. So, yeah. Poe's influence even made to Gauguin's Tahitian pictures. <laughs> Amazing. And I think what Munch might have responded to was at an early age, he said his father would read him Poe stories at bedtime. That's why it ensure you get some nightmares, but Poe grappled with a lot of the same issues that Munch was dealing with, with tuberculosis and illness in his family, and always having that feeling that he sort of was cursed that he wasn't going to live too long. So he's, Munch could have really understood what Poe was writing about and that many of his love poems are about women who are taken away from him. It seems like in Poe's life, everybody he cared about, he lost an early age. His mother died when he was two, his first love when he was 15, then when he was 20, his foster mother died of tuberculosis. And then his wife got sick and she died. She's only 24 years old, also tuberculosis. And he knew this was a disease that was everywhere, but they didn't know what was causing it, where it came from, where is it going? Some people thought, oh, it must be hereditary because everybody in the same household seems to get it. Others thought it was caused by miasma or bad air. There's a fellow here in Virginia who, when I think all of his daughters died of tuberculosis back in the 19th century, he just drained his lake because he thought it was, oh, it was bad air from the lake. So I'm just going to drain the whole lake. And also, we don't always remember this, but in Poe's day, he survived two cholera pandemics. There was 1832 and 1849. So he'd watched people being carried out by the wagon load. And they didn't know quite what caused that. They, some people thought, well, the world must be ending. These people were perfectly healthy one day, then all of a sudden they've got violent diarrhea, convulsions are turning bluish gray. They're, they're dead within a day or two. And some people thought, well, well it's, it's probably sinful living and you should get rid of all the alcohol and people should drink more water. Now they know it's spread through the water. So that wasn't the best idea they ever came up with. But Poe lost one of his best friends, Ebenezer Burling. He's one of his friends growing up. He lost him to the 1832 cholera pandemic. And in 1849, Poe was actually 
in New York. He passed through there during the outbreak, then went to Philadelphia, and he described the city as being almost like a ghost town. It was just, people had fled. Back then, if you could afford it, and the pandemic came, you just got out of the city. If you were lucky enough to have a country home, then you just fled. A lot of people weren't that lucky, so they stayed in the city. Or they didn't have any relatives to take them anywhere else. So as some people were thinking, well, maybe it's just a poor people's disease. No, they just can't afford to leave. They got nowhere else to go. And Poe said he contracted cholera during that time. He said I had cholera and the spasms quite as bad. So he almost died of cholera. But his doctor fortunately had a cure-all called calomel. If you've got TB, if you've got cholera, if you've got anything, just take some calomel. Made of mercury, but it's one of those things supposed to cure anything. Could eventually lead to mercury poisoning, but I guess that wasn't a big concern for him back then. So you so said that the, the Poe Museum has just uh, has a new exhibition, yeah? Well, we just reopened back in the beginning of July. So we've got all our exhibits buildings back open. And the museum is based all around a garden. It was built in 1921. There were a few artists and historians and writers in Richmond who thought that Poe really deserved some kind of monument, something to remember him by. And this was the age when they built all these Confederate monuments They'd save the house where Robert E. Lee's family lived during the Civil War, but Poe's homes were being torn down left and right. And this group said, well, let's build an international Poe library, the one-stop shop for all things Poe. Every first edition you could have, every printing of Poe's works, you could look at all the different changes Poe made to his stories over the years. You could see the original manuscripts. They thought the perfect place would be the office where Poe began his career in journalism, at the Southern Literary Messenger. But in 1916, the city condemned the building and demolished it. So they were out of a building. So they took the bricks down the street to an old junkyard. And they said, well, what would Poe really like? What if we constructed one of his poems in three dimensions? Poe wrote a lot of poetry about beautiful gardens. He loved landscape gardens. He thought they were an art form where man and the divine worked together. He wrote a story, The Landscape Garden. He wrote about how a very wealthy man named Ellison has all the money in the world and he wants to be a poet and an artist and a musician. He wants to be everything. So he builds the most beautiful landscape garden. Poe loved nature and gardens and flowers. So he said, let's build a Poe garden based on Poe's poem to one in paradise. So it's based on Poe's vision of paradise. Thou wast it all to me love for which my soul did pine a green isle in the sea, love a fountain and a shrine, all wreathed in fairy fruits and flowers, and all the flowers are mine. So in the middle, you've got a green isle, a fountain, a shrine, because the poem said all the flowers are mine. They listed all the different flowers and trees and shrubs that Poe mentioned in his poems and stories and trying to plant as many here as they could. So all throughout the year, there's something blooming in the winter. You'll see pansies out there. Even a few irises will hold on till... December or January, and then the spring, there's hyacinth. Poe loved hyacinth. He mentions that in some of his poems. There's tulips. Then right now we have lilies and roses out there. So there's always some kind of color. And a lot of the other plants like ivy, 
and the box would stay green all year round. So in a way, it's always feels like springtime out there, even in the middle of the winter. And around this, the Poe Museum developed into four buildings. So one of the buildings is where I am right now, the oldest house still standing in Richmond, a house that Poe would have seen often as he's growing up. And this has a display about Poe's childhood with his boyhood bed, things from his boyhood home, pictures of his early friends. And we want to show you, well, how these formative influences shape Poe's life in literature. How did that early death of his mother or the sickness of his foster mother impact his works for years to come? The next building, we have his career as a magazine writer, and that starts with his career at the Southern Literary Messenger as editor and literary critic, short story contributor, all the way up to his last book, Eureka. And you'll see things in there like the chair he used to use, the pin knife he used to used to sharpen his cool pens. You imagine you're just peeking over Poe's shoulder as he's writing. You see some of his handwriting examples there, some first editions. And then the next building's about his final days. And all throughout it, we try to also profile the people who played a major role in his life, like his wife, who became the model for some of his poetry, like Eula Lee or Annabelle Lee. We also have profiles of Annie Richmond, who is the subject of his poem for Annie, or Sarah Helen Whitman, he dedicated the poem to Helen to her. So we start to get a glimpse into Poe's world. And the last building is about Poe's final days. You see his clothing, the only place that has any of Poe's clothing. And what's especially important about this is that when we do have tours and we'll have a group of say seventh or eighth graders, we'll stop to look at Poe's vest or look at his socks and we'll say, well, what can we tell about Poe from this vest? Why do you think he would have had a vest like this? What are the materials it's made of? And that gives the students a chance to really start to examine it and come up with their own conclusions. And that's when you really get people engaged is when they can use the artifacts and sort of help teach themselves using the artifacts. They become almost like archeologists while they're here. So we really like to point out, well, what do you think it would feel like to sleep in this bed? And what do we know about this bed? What do we know about Poe when he was a kid? And how might that have inspired the tale to heart, which is a story we often perform here. So the, the students will hear the tale to heart and they'll see, well, this is a bed. Maybe the nightmares he had in this bed as a kid inspired the stories he write decades later. And it's not just kids, adults visit all the time too. We get each year, we get about 30,000 visitors from all 50 states and about 33 different countries. So it's great to see people who come here who've never read The Raven in English, but they know it in their native tongue. And we've translated the tour, I think so far into French, German, Spanish, Portuguese, Italian, Mandarin, Russian, but we're always trying to find new ways to reach out to people. So our mission here at the museum is illuminating Poe for everyone evermore. So the mission really is for everyone. How can we share Poe with everyone? So we think that literature and art really do matter. That, you know, just learning to read, learning to write, helps people able, helps them to be able to express themselves. Where would Einstein be if he hadn't been able to explain 
his general theory of relativity. If he hadn't been able to paint a word picture for us and explain to us, well, using these metaphors, this is what I'm trying to say. Otherwise, it would just be an equation. But he's able to make it real for us just with the power of language. And I guess I already mentioned the power of imagination, how with, without imagination, we're really nothing. And that's one of the great things about art, literature, music, dance, theater, cinema. It really awakens our imaginations. And I guess I already said it, but it shows us not just what is, but what could be. It really opens up possibilities. So we really do need to get in touch with our imagination. And that's one of the great things about Poe, that he, he helps us along that track. No, it's really important and it should be reiterated because it's really, really essential, I think, that people are creative beings. We've created all of what we see around us in all these cities, all of these towns, all these experiences. Um, and they came from, people think of them in this very like concrete way, but this is all like somebody had this idea and created created these things, you know, we've, we've yeah. created all of this together. And I love the, the way you described the museum and it reminded me a lot of his work in that it, you're like engaging all the different senses, like his work engages all the senses, like you said, you can like feel the fabrics and like the colors and the textures and the sounds. And it sounds like yeah. in the museum, you're trying to get people to kind of have this multi-sensory experience as well and really like immerse themselves in him and his work. Yeah, that's one of the things we try to do because there are so many different artists and cultural figures who've been inspired by Poe. We'll have displays of visual art or have film festivals. We've worked with the Latin Ballet of Virginia and they put together the Passion to Poe, which is Poe's life story and his poetry, been to dance and music and visuals. So we love working with these groups. We even did an event called the Author's Appetite, where bakers try to figure out, well, how can I interpret Poe's works in food? We love the idea of interpreting Poe's works as food because we do like to eat, but also it allows people that chance to express themselves creatively and maybe face a new challenge. How do I interpret this poem as food? And we also have, there's even a Poe beer company out there. It's called the Raven Beer Company up in Baltimore and they make Poe inspired beer. Here in Richmond, Legend Brewery just came out with an ale inspired by Hop Frog. So I it's love great it. to see how people from different <laughs> disciplines are really getting involved. I mean, if you give people that chance to express themselves, they can do it from just about any medium. Even if you're in science or technology, mathematics, we actually did a program with mathematicians. There was a math professor nearby at Virginia State University who thought, well, how can I get students interested in math? Well, what, how about cryptography? And Poe was very interested in cryptograms and secret writing. So how can we use Poe to get kids interested in math? That's wonderful. Is there anything else that you want to be sure to mention before our hour is up? Is there any events happening soon or whatever you're working on currently? Well, right now we're doing a lot of virtual events online. If you do visit the museum in person, we just ask that you wear a mask and 
we let the people go through each half hour in small groups. So we'll be updating that as conditions change. We'll probably just update that on our website. But until then, you can check our Facebook page or Twitter, or Instagram, and even our YouTube channel. And we've been doing something called the Curator's Crypt, where we profile different artifacts from the collection and show you what they tell us about Poe. What does Poe's bed tell us about him? Or what does this little manuscript tell us about Poe? We've profiled his trunk. We've profiled a piece of his coffin. So how can we use these artifacts to learn more about Poe and his work? So we even published a book that's available. I think it's on Amazon and Barnes & Noble, but also in our gift shop called The Poe Shrine. It's all about what stories, artifacts tell us. What can these Poe items teach us about Poe's life and work? So definitely check that out. And also on Instagram, the Poe Museum cats, Edgar and Pluto, have their own page. So you can catch up with them and their misadventures. And they're in a different building right now, but they wander throughout the museum and greet people. They've been spending a lot of time at the front desk just greeting whoever enters, enters the museum. So definitely a good chance. And you'll see lots of cat pictures on Facebook. But that's one of the best things about the internet is cat pictures. Everyone good, loves them. <laughs> yeah. And if you're interested in seeing any of my artwork, that would just be at chrissimpner.com. So Great, and I'll link pretty. to all of these things. But you know, coming up in the fall, we'll have more events. Hopefully some of them will be in person, but definitely we're going to keep on doing the online component because we want people, even if they can't get to Virginia, to be able to participate in some of these programs. But be sure to check out our January event. We usually celebrate Poe's birthday. So that'll be in January. So stay tuned, check the social media and the website and find out what's going on with that. Wonderful. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Chris Sempner an artist and curator at the Edgar Allan Poe Museum in Richmond, Virginia. For more, please visit his website, chrissempner.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-S-E-M-T-N-E-R.com. And the Edgar Allan Poe Museum's website, Poe Museum. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. From Chapart Books, 2019. For more, please visit our publisher's website, chapart.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash v-a-n-e-s-s-a two three 
C-A-R-L. Your support is greatly appreciated. For more information, you can also visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net, or the podcast main website, renderingunconscious.org. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. Should we?